Daniel chapter 4. We are getting to that part of the book of Daniel where it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. So hang on to your hats. Tonight we have part one of a two-part study. It'll take all of chapter 4. You know, we, we all have our favorite chapters in the Bible and You know, I've told you about a few of mine. This falls in that category for a very, very, very strange reason. This is one of those chapters that when you first start to read it and you realize this is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, a pagan Gentile who is uh, responsible for the capture of the Jewish people and the destruction of Jerusalem. And in this chapter... God breaks through that kind of a hard heart and the Lord is able to reach into a man whom you would think could never, ever possibly be saved. And I believe when we get to heaven, you're going to get a chance to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. I believe he's going to be there. So it's it's just a fantastic, amazing chapter. That when you look at it at first glance, you're like, wow, is it really saying what it appears to say? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, No doubt, um, because of the tremendous wealth of information that we have about the Babylonian people, and over the next several chapters, I'm going to be highlighting a lot of those things. One of the blessings of the treasure trove that is the Dead Sea Scrolls is tremendous copies of ancient Babylonian writings. And so you you have the records of some of these kings actually included in some of that that was recovered in those caves at Qumran. And so this is just amazing in, in and of the fact that it is this pagan king who has just attempted to end the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, And God saves them. The Lord Jesus is with them in the fire. They they keep it cool. They go through that tremendous trial. And not only is God going to use them, but God's going to turn the tables on a pagan king and literally use that as as the basis uh, to preach the gospel to him. And we begin to see that picture uh, in tonight's study. We'll take the first 28 verses tonight. We'll finish it up next time as we join together. And so would you pray with me as we pray over this passage of Scripture. Father, we thank you for the amazing beauty of your word. And Lord, it is just staggering to us. Lord, we can't help but think of all of those pagan rulers throughout time and that we wonder if there was someone bold enough to pray for their salvation, someone who could put down their anger long enough to pray for your spirit to work in their lives. And, Lord, the result of it here is that no doubt Daniel was praying for this king, whom though he is a conquering king and had destroyed the beloved city of Jerusalem, uh, there was obviously somebody praying for his soul. And so, God, we ask that you would uh, reach into our hearts, change our hearts and our minds, help us to pray effectively for people that we don't even like, Lord, but we know that you love. And, Lord, what a precious lesson this is to not give up, Lord, to not surrender uh, anyone to the depths of despair. Lord, to just continue to pray until you take us or them home. And so, God, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you for tonight. We praise you. Now speak to us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, it begins, Nebuchadnezzar the king. And so he signs it, he autographs it, highly likely that Daniel copied this, uh, what would be, in essence, a declaration. Uh, you would look at it if you've ever had to do a deposition in court, and you, you go in and you sit down with the scribe, and, and in essence you, you map out some statements. It, it appears that this is the type of writing uh, that's described here. Remember, this is written again in Aramaic. Uh, so that the people after the exile, because that would be the language that they would speak, they will have basically uh, not remembered, largely most of them, 
uh, Hebrew. They'll come back from the captivity and largely not speak Hebrew to one another, but rather Aramaic, uh, which would be the language of Judea in the time of Jesus as well. And so in Aramaic, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. And so he makes it very clear that this message is to, is to go out to the whole world. And it's amazing to me that a pagan king would do that uh, with regard to what he's going to now write and explain to us. Because it shows you the depths to which God has already worked in his life. And it's interesting, you can kind of tell when people are getting close to coming to Jesus, amen? All of a sudden they're talking about, they're talking about the Lord a bunch. They don't know the Lord, they haven't got a clue, they're still engaged in all kinds of sinful activity, but they want everybody to know about God even though they themselves have not accepted the Lord Jesus as Savior. And that is exactly where this is. Notice what he says, peace be multiplied to you. And I thought it good to declare the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Notice how he personalizes this. No one comes to Christ until the work of the Lord becomes personal. No one comes to Christ until the work of the Lord becomes personal. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. doesn't matter what church you've gone to. doesn't matter what country you live in. does not matter what language or social demographic you're from. What matters is that at some point in time, each of us must make a choice of what we will do with what we know about the Lord Jesus personally. And so he says, these signs, these wonders, and of course he's looking back now on several things. You've got these Hebrew young men who dared to stand. You, You then have them thrown into the fire, and they were not singed. You have the Daniel and his companions uh, not only interpreting the dream, but bear, bearing enough uh, intestinal fortitude before the Lord to speak that dream, even though it condemned the very man who could put them to death. And so he's saying that these things have now had an impact in his life. Family of God, do not underestimate the words that you speak and the actions that you undertake, that they give glory to the Lord and what they're doing in other people's lives. I can guarantee you that there were times when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought that what they were doing, what they were saying, was going unheeded, it was going unlearned, it was falling, as we would say, on deaf ears. But it wasn't falling on deaf ears. It only looked that way. And from God's perspective, he's using that word to do what he declares it always will, that it will not return void, but it goes forth and purposes what he wills it to do. And in this case, it's getting to a pagan king. At the Most High God worked for me. He said he's basically admitting that when those three men were thrown into the fiery furnace, that was for Nebuchadnezzar to see. He's going to now transfer that truth to those who are listening. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. And so this chapter is the record, in essence, of the conversion experience of Nebuchadnezzar the king. And so as we read it and as we, as we share in this amazing event, uh, we, we begin to see how God has worked already in the first three chapters and now in the fourth. In the first chapter, the king learns that there is a God in heaven who reveals himself through these four teenagers. And that God in heaven is absolutely sovereign and that that God in heaven blesses those who bless him. So in chapter one, we see that. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have of the the scriptures. It matters that you're willing to take a stand for Jesus. And if you do that, then there is a God in heaven who will honor you for it. And we see that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, uh, the king learns that there, there's a God in heaven who has knowledge that nobody on earth has, and he is the one that's able to transmit that to people. You remember the vision of that dream. Uh, the, the king learns that that God in heaven reveals secrets to people in only a way that a God outside of space and time can do. And you'll see these things are very consistent in our day and time. 
God uses the events of our lives to reveal Christ to people. And he does that in spectacular, amazing ways that make no sense apart from the fact that there's a God in heaven. And so these first four chapters are each one of them a different picture of the workings of a sovereign God in the world. And in chapter 3, the the king himself learns there's a God in heaven who works miracles on behalf of his people, and he is for those who trust in him. So important that that's us. You can see how this translates over even to our time, that we recognize that as we are being used of the Lord, God's doing spectacular things in our lives that only God can do. And as he reveals those truths to other people through the work that he's doing in our lives, he's actually bearing witness of himself. And so you can imagine when those three Hebrew young men dropped through that fiery furnace and plunked to the furnace floor and singed. There's only one person that can do that. God's revealing himself. And here in chapter 4, probably the, the best of these four things that we learn uh, about that God in heaven, that there is a God in heaven who, who works in the lives of the proud, who saves the humble, and, and he will save all who call upon the name of the Lord. Even pagan, conquering, Gentile kings that when they first meet the Lord, maybe they're the worst antagonists of the things of God. I'm sure that probably most of you have somebody like that in your life. You've got somebody you, you just know, it doesn't matter how much you share Jesus with them, they're not coming to Christ. Amen? Anybody got one of those? i got a, several of them. You've got somebody in your life, it does not matter. Matter of fact, I'll be honest with you. Uh, we got a whole bunch of those folks in Washington, D.C. right now. That's just like, I, have a, I admit, I have a tough time praying for people who, who willingly and repetitively and continually do exactly what God says not to, yet they name the name of the Lord. I have a very tough time praying for those people. But this passage tells me I need to keep praying because I don't know when God's done. I, I don't know when he's spoken the last word. And maybe the last word to a lot of people will be their ultimate demise. Maybe that's true. But I don't know that. And so my responsibility is to be like Daniel and to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and keep praying until God says it's done. Just keep doing it. You never know. Maybe that's that unsaved family member. Maybe it's somebody in your workplace. Maybe it's the President of the United States. I hate the fact that our president claims to know the Lord Jesus and yet has enacted so many godless laws. I hate it. It bugs me to no end. But do I hate it enough to pray? Or do I just hate it because I know it's wrong? You see, there's a difference between those two places. We're to hate the things that God hates, but we're to love that which God loves. And God loves people, including people that do the wrong thing. And so it tells us to pray, just as Jesus reminded us there in Matthew chapter 5, to to love our neighbor, hate our enemy. But he says that's the way the world is. He says, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and spitefully use you for my name's sake. You see, that's the picture that we have here in this chapter. You know, I, I doubt very seriously at that point in time. Remember the scene. The Jewish people are in exile. They have been taken captive. They have been drug across the largest desert on the face of the earth. They're now 1,200 miles away in a foreign land, foreign country. Their homeland has been destroyed. It was taken over. To put it into a modern context, this this would be exactly what we would have thought had the Japanese won Uh, the Battle of Pearl Harbor, and they actually invaded the western coast of the United States and had taken over and then drug us back to Japan. Okay, And I'm not saying that that's what they did. Using it by way of analogy, think about how you would have thought if that actually happened. That awful day in December 1941 occurs. 3,000 American citizens lose their lives in Pearl Harbor. But that's not the end. It's only the beginning of the conquest 
of the Imperial Army of Japan. And they reach the West Coast. They take us over and they drag you back to Tokyo. And you're sitting in Tokyo now. You're no longer in Southern California. You're in Tokyo, Japan, foreign language. And you have the emperor of Japan come to you and say, and oh, by the way, I don't believe in your God. How much praying do you think you would have done for the emperor of Japan to be saved? Ask yourself that question. And yet I guarantee you somebody was praying for Nebuchadnezzar's salvation because he got saved. There was a reason that these guys did these things. I, I doubt that there were many Jews that were praying, God save King Nebuchadnezzar. I doubt they were even willing to whisper those things. And yet, honestly, family of God, that's God's heart. God save Osama bin Laden. I mean, think about it. Just for a second, think about it in the context of our day and time. Are we praying that these people get saved instead of get killed? Are we praying that their hearts get changed? That their minds get changed? That they come face to face with a God in heaven who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think? Or are we just praying, kill them? I'm guilty. I, I'm, I'm big on David's prayers, okay? I'm not pointing my finger at anybody because I've prayed more times than I care to imagine. Lord, break their teeth out of their mouth, grind their bones to dust. David prayed that, prayed that prayer. I'm praying that prayer because David prayed that prayer. But are we willing to pray for people whom we don't like? Matter of fact, not only do we not don't like them, we hate them with hot heaping hunks of hate. We, we have super enraged hatred towards them because of what they've done. If you ever want to be freed from unforgiveness, begin to love and pray for people who have hurt you and used you. If you want to be set free, you'll be set free when you're free enough to pray for their salvation and to ask, dare to ask God to bless them. That's when you'll be set free. You will never be set free as long as you're praying, kill them. Because that's not God's heart. It's never God's heart. It wasn't God's heart over Judas. Think about it for a second. Jesus wept over what was going on in Judas's life. He couldn't believe that Judas was going to betray him, especially with a kiss. And I guarantee you in the Garden of Gethsemane on Jesus' mind was Judas Iscariot. I guarantee it. We can ask him when we get there, but... I, I can guarantee you he was praying for Judas. Even though he knew the outcome to the end, he's saying, oh, if there's just some way, just like he prayed, if there's any way to take this cup from me, I know that the heart of God is to save the lost. Undoubtedly, that that faithful remnant that was in Babylon had had about all they wanted of Nebuchadnezzar. We have this in our lives, don't we? we? We reach those points to where I'm fed up. I'm done. I'm tired. I don't want to go through this anymore. That person, that group of people, and yet the Lord is still crying out in his mercy to those who will, who will believe. Our hatred for the Gentiles was so great that as far as the Jews were concerned, they wouldn't even eat with a Gentile. Think about it. This is amazing stuff. I mean, there was a transformation in the hearts and the minds. We, we talk about, you know, the Old Testament saints. I want you to be really clear on this. The definition of an Old Testament saint is the same as a New Testament saint. The only difference being is that Jesus had not yet died for their sins, but they believed the same character and nature to be true. They believed in grace. They believed in mercy. They were waiting for that to be poured out. They were seeking to love their enemies. All of those things that Jesus would bring in fullness in the time of his life were still visible in, in the times of the Old Testament. Abraham believed by faith. Noah believed by faith. Isaac believed by faith, these things. And what they believed is in the same character of the same God that ultimately died on Calvary's cross. 
To God, this proud monarch was nothing more than a lost sheep. Think about it. From God's perspective, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing but another lost sheep. He happened to be the head of a lot of other sheep, but he was still a lost sheep. And we know what Jesus said about lost sheep. I'll leave the ninety and nine to go after the one. You're willing to go after the one. You're willing to be used in somebody's life that maybe today, tonight, you hate them. Can't stand to be around them. God answered somebody's prayers in the lives of Nebuchadnezzar. And I would ask you, is there somebody in your life that you need to be a more effective prayer warrior over? I can say yes in my own life. There are people in my life that I don't pray for like I should. That needs to change. This testimony that's in this introduction is actually really a spiritual conclusion because you'll notice what he wishes. He, he wishes peace upon everyone, doesn't he? Who's the Prince of Peace? Who Jesus is, Amen. And it's interesting because the way he words this in Aramaic, he uses the Aramaic word uh, shalom, which is the Hebrew word shalom, which is our word for peace. And it happens to be the peace that's described that we get from a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an eternal peace. It's God's peace. It's not the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean there won't be any war. It's a peace that all things are settled in your heart because something eternal has taken over your life. So what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is let it be known to all the people on the earth and all the languages of the earth and the nations of the earth what I wish for you more than anything else is a peace that we don't know. What he was declaring really was salvation unto the Lord. How did the king arrive at that kind of knowledge? I've been asked this by Bible college students. How in the world did Nebuchadnezzar ever come to this? And there are really several things. Number one, you have to remember who his chief counselor was, and none other than Daniel. And Daniel was a student of the Old Testament scriptures. And I guarantee you that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, because scripture declares that. Okay? And so as Daniel was, was talking to the king, no doubt he was probably quoting Proverbs and Psalms to him. You, you can imagine, well, king, you know, uh, Solomon said this in chapter 9 of his book, which he wouldn't have used chapter 9. He would have just quoted the verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know where I got my wisdom from? It's because I fear God. I don't fear you. So the whole time he's just bearing witness with his life. You see, sometimes we get hung up in thinking we have to preach a message to somebody for them to get saved. That's really not true. You have to speak the word of the Lord to them, and you can do that by a lot of different ways. And a lot of times it's just how you, how you conduct your own life before them. And you've seen that in Daniel and his friends. Like, this is how we're going to live. Oh, king, we don't care what you're going to do. Everybody else bows down, we're standing up. You can throw us in the furnace, we'll go. It doesn't matter to us. We fear God more than you. And then all of a sudden that God reveals himself because the Holy Spirit can do that at any point in time to anybody. Amen? And then what happens is the things that you have done all of a sudden become the catalyst for belief. Now think on this for a minute. They become the catalyst for belief. If you've ever done any type, you ladies probably haven't done this, but if you've ever mixed Bondo or any type of two-part epoxy, there, there's one part that's the actual epoxy, and then there's the hardener that you put in it. And as you mix that in, it's actually a catalyst, and it causes a chemical reaction to go off. And then eventually what happens is, is that hardens into that filler that goes in your car after you hit a berm. Here's the thing. Without the catalyst, you smear that Bondo on your car, it's just going to drool down the side of your car. It, won't, it will not stick. It will not get hard. It will not do anything. And in fact, it makes a bigger mess than you had from just the dent. So a lot of times what happens is people can hear the word of the Lord, but until there's a catalyst in their life, which is your life lived before them, all of a sudden that word of the Lord becomes alive because they see you live it. 
They see you breathe it. They see you eat and sleep it. They see you doing it. And that is the catalyst for that blob of bondo that's been put on their life. All of a sudden, just like that, it goes off. And again, back to that analogy, once you put the catalyst in, you've got a few minutes to work with it because it's going to get hard. And so it's a picture of how the Lord works in our lives. All this stuff's going on in people's lives, and all of a sudden, that one little bit, and here's the picture. You've got a pile of bondo like this. It's only a little tiny dab of catalyst that needs to go in it to make it hard. It's the same thing in spiritual terms. There's all kinds of watering and planting and fertilizing and weeding and raking and stuff that's gone on in people's lives. And all of a sudden you speak that one word of truth at the right moment in the right context and boom, it all goes off just like that. That's what this was about. And they have what we call an epiphany, an aha moment. It's like, oh, now I get it. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a Bible scholar. I doubt he could quote chapter and verse. But he had enough faith to believe. Because people had lived their lives before him, and all of a sudden, something happens, and it goes off just like that. And they get saved. And the king is now perplexed. Verse 4, it says, And I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house. I love this. This is the craziness of the world. He's at rest in his house. This is how people are. You ever notice how your friends who don't know Jesus, they think they've got it all figured out, they're at rest, and they're sitting there in their big house, and they've got their nice cushy armchair, and they've got their nice car in the driveway, and their bank account's full, and they're at rest in their house. But God's at work behind the scenes, and he's using you to come along and be a catalyst. Somebody spread Bondo on his car, and you're going to come along and set the whole mess in, in motion. And flourishing in my palace. So here he is at rest. It's so cool how God works this way still to this day. You don't think anything's happening in that person's life. You've been sowing the seeds of the gospel for 20 years. You've been praying for them. You've been giving them tracts. You even took them to a Christian concert. And they're like, man, these guys stink. You know, give me the grateful dead. And you don't think anything's getting through. And they're in their lounge chair and they're watching Monday Night Football. And they got their 12 pack and their bowl of pretzels and the control for the chair. And they don't even have to move, which is like, (laughs) and they put on the split screen thing to where there's like 14 different football games at once. And they're just at ease. Man, life is good. And all of a sudden, the back of their head, little light goes on. This isn't all there is to life. Okay, this is great. I did this last week. I can do it next week. Is this all there is to life? Is this everything there is? Is this what I was created for? You see, they don't have any answers for those things. Only God gives answers for those things. And so all of that watering and planting and seeding and fertilizing and reinforcement, all of a sudden something happens. In this case, it's a dream. Check it out. I saw a dream which made me afraid. Family of God, there is not a person on this earth who does not have human fear about something. And I don't care whether that's Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or the President of the United States or any one of us, there is something that strikes fear into our heart. Maybe it's the fear of death. Maybe it's the fear of old age. Maybe it's the fear of failure. Maybe it's the fear of relationships. There is the fear of something that strikes fear into the heart of every single person, and you can't do anything humanly about it. It's there. Period. That's where God comes in. Because He's the answer to that fear. He is the answer to what ails us and troubles us at the deepest level of our humanity. And notice what He says now. 
And I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me, and therefore I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, he's done this before, amen? He's going to have it again. You see, God keeps speaking, and he keeps working, and he keeps moving, and he's always doing something, even though we can't tell what he's doing. And here it is, this amazingly powerful king who has just admitted that there's a God in heaven who gives peace that the world needs that not everybody has. This is how God works. He sets the stage, and he puts people in these situations to where, There's no answer in and of themselves. And so he calls in the wise men for the interpretation. And then the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in. And I told them the dream. Now notice this time. Remember last time he didn't tell them the dream, right? He figures that's a waste of time. He says, because I I think I know what's going to happen. And so I'm going to skip to the middle here. I I know who's going to be able to answer this. And they did not make known to me its interpretation. He, no big deal. He, is, he already knows that. So this time he tells the wise men the dream. They couldn't interpret it. No attempt. Remember last time they kind of tried to pull the wool over Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. He's like, nah, that isn't going to work. So he, he kind of cuts to the chase, if you will. Maybe he called these guys instead of Daniel, trying to get, you know, trying to get in the back door, if you will. We don't really know. But we know that ultimately only God answers these things. And so now verse 8, he says, But at last Daniel came before me. And remember his name is, is Belshazzar. That's his, that's his Babylonian name. And according to that name of my God. Now notice he's still trusting you know, in good old Marduk. He says, In the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. He said, I called him in here in the name of my God. But in dead in the middle of this sentence, he changes the focus and he, and he declares that in him, in Belshazzar, in Daniel, is the holy spirit of big God. Not God with the little g, the true and the living God who is different than the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. He's making a profession of faith. He's saying there's something different about Daniel. There's something in him that nobody in my realm has. He's honoring the fact that God is at work in Daniel's life because he's seen it. And I told the dream to him, saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, Because I know that the, again, spirit of the holy God is in you. Now remember this. From a Babylonian context, gods were not holy. Powerful? Yes. Persuasive? Yes. But most of the time, they were capricious. Most of the time, they were unholy. Most of the time, they actually had some pretty bad, nasty habits. And most of the time, they did not have the best interest of anybody but themselves in mind. So when he uses here in Aramaic, the word that's translated holy, he's talking about divinity. He's using the singular pronoun for God, and he's talking about it in a divine sense. There was no Babylonian God that fit that picture. They were all believed to, in essence, be tyrants who did whatever they wanted to do. And so he says, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. And no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And these were the visions of my head while I was on my bed. And he goes on now and he's going to explain this whole thing. And so he calls Daniel in in the name of his gods. And at the moment Daniel enters the room, and he says, there's something different between you and my gods. The gods that I used to trust in have failed me, is what he's admitting. Nebuchadnezzar knew that there was something different. And here is the vision. He said, there were visions in my head while I was on my bed, in verse 10. And I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, 
and its height was great. And I want you to notice here in the first part of this dream, you're going to see it and its. By the middle of the dream, you're going to see him and his. And so very obviously, it begins with a vision, and that vision very obviously is a man by the time it gets interpreted. So again, it's a thing who is a person. And the tree grew and became strong, and its height reached the heavens, and it could be seen in the ends of the earth. And so, of course, because we can look a little bit ahead and realize what's going to happen next, and we begin to see this unfold, it's very similar to the the golden image. He said, here it is, this tree, it's huge. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, in it was food for all, and the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And, of course, we can look at that and go, well, of course, it makes sense what he's seen. It's a king. It's a kingdom. It, it's a person and it's a place. It's a, it's a he. And I saw in the visions, verse 13, in my head while I was on my bed, that there was a watcher. That word watcher can also be translated angel. It's roughly the same word. Uh, it, it is uh, the Aramaic word uh, Kaddish, and Kaddish actually means holy one. And so it's very much the same word that we would have translated cherubim. So it's highly likely that this is an angel. There was watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. Notice where he comes from, very important. He wasn't already on the earth, he came down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, This is kind of a bummer if you happen to be the king and you're starting to put these things together. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts of the field get out from underneath it and the birds from its branches. You can imagine you start hearing these things and then it's going to get worse for him. But nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. And in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the earth with their grass. And so he he begins to to now, I believe Nebuchadnezzar by this point in time is looking at it. He's going, oh, no, not again. You know, the last one was this giant image and I was the head of gold. And now it says... Verse 16, notice the change, and this change is there in the Aramaic copy that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. And so it tells us point blank that it is a man, that the vision's a man. It's described as a tree, but it is a man. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the heart of a beast, and let Seven times pass over him. And so now it's a he. It's a him. It's a his. And we're told exactly that it's a person. This is the decision by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. So you can begin to see exactly what's being said here. That there's a kingdom, that kingdom had a king, that man was a person, and that that man had ruled so that all people, in essence, benefited from his kingdom, that people were underneath him, that he was extremely powerful, that he was gigantic, so that everyone basically uh, was, was underneath his reign. And now that's going to change. And that man is no longer going to be powerful. And he's going to be chopped down to a stump. And it's interesting that a stump is still alive. And you need to keep a picture of this. Because it doesn't say that, in essence, the kingdom is going to go away. It says the king's going to go away. But the kingdom's going to remain, except it's going to be a stump instead of the beautiful tree that it once was. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen And now you, Belshazzar, 
Declare its interpretation, since all of the wise men from my kingdom are not able to make it known to me as to the interpretation. But you are able, for again, the spirit of the holy God is in you. So he gets these four sections now and begins to break them down. It's an exceedingly great tree. The tree is going to be cut down. There's going to be a seven-year period of, of this animalistic behavior that is not going to be normal. And there's going to be a decree that's going to come forth from this. And so here these angels, in essence, deliver this. The, the personal pronouns switch over, and we know that this is a person. And so, interestingly enough, Jesus actually employs the same basic vision in Matthew chapter 13, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man looked and planted in his field, and though it's the smallest of your seed, when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. And so Jesus also using this same basic picture, but this tree who is a man is going to receive a drastic change and now that the birds have fled from nebuchadnezzar's dream the word of god is going to take root the man is going to live with the animals and eat like them he's he, he uses the aramaic word shavea which is animal or beast and it's going to say that seven times it's going to pass over him saying that he for seven years he's going to be like this and what he says in the context of it he says it's God who raises up kings. It's God who raises up kingdoms. It's God who ultimately controls everything. Even though, now think about this, this king conquered Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. He took God's people captive. He brought them back and mistreated them, and yet God is still on the throne. When we see stuff like that, we think, where's God? must have fallen off the throne. Matter of fact, we, we even go so far as to think, well, maybe God doesn't exist. God is still in control of the affairs of men. And so these angels declare it. And we gain insight. These messengers, these angels, these watchers oversee the affairs of men. They're still here, folks. The angelic host is still around doing God's bidding. It's rare that we get uh, the visual entrance of these beings into our world. I think it's extremely rare. But I think a lot of times there's stuff going on that if you saw it, it'd make you freak out. You know, how many times when you're driving down the 330, there are like angels on all corners of your car, like repelling the Flatlanders as they come around the corners wide at 70 miles an hour, towing a boat and an RV, you know, it, it's... We don't know what they're doing. How many times should have perhaps the United States of America actually fallen? But because we were a country that proclaims Christ, the Lord has spared us and saved us. How many times has he sent a legion of angels into battle? How many times has he defended the defenseless? How many times has the Lord been there for you, been there for me, been there for us? Thank you, Jesus. Because he's not slack concerning his promises. And he's promised to take care of his people. Now, sometimes bad things happen to good people. There's no question about that. But it doesn't mean that God's fallen off the throne. And it doesn't mean that he didn't have enough resources. It wasn't like he went to the angel pool and he goes, Oh, my goodness, I'm out of angels. I didn't know that. So I guess Jeff's on his own today. I have a, like a whole legion permanently assigned to me, I think. But God's been doing this for a long time. He used Gabriel to announce the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. He, he used angels to announce the birth of Christ himself to the shepherds. He used angels to talk to Joseph in his dream. He's used angels throughout the course of human history to, to announce special events. And I believe this is a special event. This dream reveals to Nebuchadnezzar, that, that there is a sovereign God who in heaven still has his hands on the earth. He's actively involved and engaged in everyday life. And I, I think we need to remember that at times. Well, it's this last few weeks I've had to just like, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm not sure that I, I will know right now why you're doing what you're doing. But I trust you. And I know you're sovereign. 
And I know that you're working these things out. And maybe there's some kind of intense battle that I'm not seeing going on, but it's going on and it's real. And I know at the end of it, here's the good news. In the end, we win. Amen? We win. As the children of God, we win. We're already on the winning side. We fight from victory and not for victory. The victory's already been won. It was won at the cross. But there's some skirmishes still underway. And those skirmishes at times can be very uh, disconcerting. They can be harmful. They can be hurtful. But God hasn't fallen apart. He, he, he isn't like, you know, sitting around going, oh, I really didn't see that one coming. You know, wow, you know, and that person lost their job or there was that thing going on in their marriage. That just took me totally by surprise. I didn't have enough angels available. And, you know, my power has kind of been waning of late. And, man, Satan has just gotten so powerful in these last days. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a little tough to keep up with him. It just doesn't happen that way. God is fully in control. And he allows things to happen that we simply don't understand. And we won't see fully until we get to be with him. So Nebuchadnezzar is getting a picture. The throne uh, really enhances, if you will, the status of man. But it doesn't make the man noble. Amen? The, the office of president is why I, I'm really starting to, to hate the presidential race right now. It's just gotten so uncivil and just, you know, it's, to me, a lot of the things that are going on, and, and I'm going to be honest, from both sides, are just beneath the office of president. That's how I think of it. It's just like I think of the president of the United States like Abraham Lincoln, dignified, willing to die, and I will do the right thing at all times. I don't think of digging up trash on somebody and thrashing their character and saying mean, stupid, dumb, hateful things. To me, that's beneath the office of the president. And I don't care who does it. It doesn't matter to me, Democrat, Republican. I hate it when everybody does it. It bugs me. Now imagine in this case, you've got Nebuchadnezzar sitting on his throne. All of his counselors are gathered around. If there's anybody who looks like they got it together, it's him. He's at rest in his house. He is in the palace. He's kicked back on his throne. And he's like, I'm bad. I'm awesome. I am the world's most powerful person. Then comes God. And not only is he not the world's most powerful person, he's a tree. Not only is he a tree, he's a tree that's going to get chopped down. Not only is he a tree that's going to get chopped down, he's going to be a tree out of whose stump is going to come something that he doesn't really want to hear about. He, he's going to, in fact, become uh, less than, than what he ever thought. And he's going to become like the lowest of the low. He's going to become an animal. In verse 19, let's try and wrap up this part tonight. And then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. Uh, yeah. It's like, man, how many times do I have to tell the king he's a jerk? How many? Why does God keep sending me in here to tell this most powerful man on the earth that he's in deep trouble with God? Could you just use like one of the astrologers to do that? He's troubled, okay? And so the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let this dream or its, or its interpretation trouble you. That is the sign of a softened heart. That's a man who God is already at work in. God's already working in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Because I think he already knows. You see, when God works in people's lives, he kind of reveals things incrementally to them. And I think he's already getting it. And Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. You see, even Daniel's kind of starting to grow with some affection towards the king. He's saying, man, I don't want to tell him this. And he's starting to get it. Can, can I share with you, there's some serious holy boldness going on here. Okay? You all have people like this in your life. Somebody with whom that you have been sharing the truth of God's word with. 
and the light's starting to come on, and they're right at that edge, and yet they're doing something really dumb and stupid, and you don't want to tell them the truth anymore. You've been faithful up until that point in time, but you're going to let this one slide because you think they're getting close. Finish the job. That's the word to you. Finish strong. Finish what you set out to do. Keep preaching Christ to them. Make sure that they know the truth and don't back off. Because Daniel here, Belshazzar here, is basically saying, I really don't want to tell you this. I think you're getting close. And so let's apply this to your enemies. Let's just generalize it. Anybody ever guilty of that? Well, I don't really want to tell that guy that he's actually living in sin. So I'll just make up a story about it. And I'll generalize that maybe to most people, you probably shouldn't think about doing the things that he's doing, even though you're doing them. I don't want to tell you you're doing them, so I'm going to tell you about somebody else. Finish the job. Speak the truth in love and be bold to the end. Because here's the problem. If you don't, when you're standing there on the deathbed of that loved one, you want to know you've said everything. You don't want to have in the back of your mind, I wish I had actually told them the gospel. I wish I had sealed the deal with them and said, you know what, Jesus alone saves. Instead of, well, you know, there is God. You need to take it all the way to the end. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached the heavens and would be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and fruit abundant, in which was food for all, and under which the beasts of the fields dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home, it's you, O king. It's you. You see, he didn't really want to. He's saying, man, if it could be somebody else, that'd be awesome. It's you who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown, and it reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. He says, King, you're still not quite there. i got to tell you the truth. You're real close. I wish I wasn't having this conversation with you. I sure wish I could tell you something else, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, Notice this. The king saw a watcher. The king's getting the heavenly picture as well. A holy one coming down from heaven saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump on the roots of the earth, bound by a band of iron and bronze and tender grass in the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. He said, here's what you saw. You saw the angel. You know what it is. I'm telling you, the tree is you. The axe is coming to you. You're the beast of the field. You're the one that's going to graze for seven years. He said, this is the interpretation. This is the decree of the Most High. Remember the king, he's already acknowledged the fact that Daniel has in him the spirit of the holy God. The one, the true God. This is the decree. He says, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times it shall pass over you till you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. But inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you. In other words, the kingdom's going to go on. And after you come to know that heaven rules, <laughs> after you give in... <laughs> After you accept the Lord, after you've made a profession of faith. Therefore, O King, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. He looks right in the eye and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Stop doing what you're doing. The problem is you've been going the wrong way and you need to stop. 
Family of God, we can't leave that out of our counsel to anyone. You can't tell people about the grace of God without telling them about the holiness of God. Did you hear what I just said? You can't tell them about the grace of God without telling them about the holiness of God. Because God doesn't accept our filth and our trash. You can't leave people engaged in sinful behavior because unless they repent, their confession of faith is not genuine. There has to be a turning from in order for there to be a turning to. Do you get it? Repent means 180. It means to turn around, go the other way. That's why when somebody says to me, well, it's just all grace, man. Yeah, it's grace that saves. But it's repentance that declares the salvation. It's repentance that declares the salvation. See, I'm not declaring that I've accepted the salvation of the Lord if I just say I don't need to change. I'm my own God at that point in time. And so don't make that mistake. There, there has to be a change. Now, that change doesn't have to be perfect. And that change isn't going to be instantaneous in everything. But it will be real. It will be substantive. And it will be all-encompassing of their whole being. And so he says to him, you need to stop doing what you're doing, and you need to turn around and go the other. You need to put off the old man. You need to put on the new. You're saved by grace, but I'll show you my faith by my works, just as James said. What he's, what he's doing is he's preaching the gospel to him. And so he says, break off your sins by being righteous, repent, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. You see, that's a change of heart, isn't it? He says, you stop doing what you were doing, and you do the right thing, and you prove it by doing works that show the righteousness. And that righteousness is a change of heart, which produces in you a care for the poor, which you did not have before. This is, this is salvation 101. He's preaching the gospel to him in the Old Testament. He's saying, turn from your iniquity, do righteousness, prove you've accepted God by doing works. And again, not saved by him, just saying if it's real, then something real is going to happen in your life. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. The word prosperity there is actually, again, shalem, a lengthening of your peace an increase of that peacefulness of your heart. And so he says, you're the tree. God cares so much about you that he sent someone personally to this earth in the form of an angel to tell you about it. He sent me here personally to tell you about God's goodness. I'm giving you all you need to know right now, Nebuchadnezzar, so that you can turn from your sin and turn from your wickedness and repent and do the first works. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees at the River Jordan at the baptism of John? The Pharisees came down to the river, and they saw John baptizing. And they said, we want to be baptized too. We, we want you to baptize us, because we're already, you know, I mean, we're children of the book, and we know the law. Jesus said, not on your life, you brood of vipers. He said, you first go and do the works of repentance and then come back and be baptized. He said, don't come down here thinking that you can do something to earn your salvation or that you're going to be holy by taking part in some ritual. You go repent of your sins and prove with your actions you're actually saved. Then come back and bear witness to the baptism. It's always been that way. The truly saved lives lives that are different than they were before. It's that simple. And so when somebody comes to you and says they don't need to change, they don't have a full picture of the grace of God. And you need to tell them the full picture. You, you, can't, you can't say, no, just go ahead and keep doing whatever you're doing, man. It's just all God's grace. Scripture does not teach that message about salvation. It doesn't do it in Daniel, and it doesn't do it in John. The truly saved person is repentant. The truly saved person does works of righteousness. The truly saved person has a change of heart. 
the truly saved person has a change of character and nature. And so if those things aren't happening, you keep praying and you keep preaching. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that for each of us who know you, Lord, uh, that you sent people into our lives, that that faith came to to us by the hearing of the word. And God, as we heard it and, and recognized its truth, and as you sent your Holy Spirit through people, and you sent your Holy Spirit through your word, and your Holy Spirit through angelic hosts, and Lord, the rocks and the trees cried out to us. God, we we realize that you can save the hardest of hearts. You can save a pagan king who is a conqueror of your own beloved people. And God, so we know there are people in our lives that we need to pray more for. Help us to do that. Lord, help us to not give up. Help us to not fall short of the punchline, Lord. Help us to remind people that you're a holy God and that you require repentance that there's no salvation for the unrepentant heart. Your word plainly declares that. That out of us flow good works when we're your kids. And so, God, we pray that you just strengthen us with these truths. Help us to be an encouragement to others. And we pray that you help us to pray more for those whom we really struggle with, Lord. Bless us as your people. Anoint us to this purpose. Cause us to be powerful like Daniel. Help us to be purposeful like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Help us to be effective, Lord, to those who we need to preach the gospel, Lord, with our very lives. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.